So we are glad that you all are here today. If you would please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Thanks to my educator wife, both of our kids were voracious readers from a very, very early age, which led them to kind of tackle some pretty significant works of literature early on. And for my son, that meant falling in love with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In fact, he fell so much in love with it that as a part of his college graduation, this is how big of nerds we are in my family, for his college graduation, I arranged with the curator of the Tolkien Archives at Marquette University in Milwaukee to show us some of the holdings when we were up there for a baseball game, which again proves that we are bigger nerds than anybody that I'm looking at here today. Um, but because he loved uh, the Lord of the Rings so much, it meant that when Peter Jackson put the book to a movie, uh, we had to see it. The problem was that it was such a huge story that even an edited version of the plot was more than one movie could take on. And so Jackson broke them up into three full-length movies and released them consecutively over uh, the holiday season from 2001 to 2003. So we'd see one, and then we'd wait a year, and then we'd see the next one, and then we'd wait a year, and then we would see uh, the final one when it was released. And let me just tell you, that's pretty tough sledding when you're 8 to 10 years old, but we made it. Now, I share that with you today because we are embarking on a retelling of Christ's life that is so immense and will require so many messages that we are forced to break it into what will essentially be three different series before we finish it in the summer of 2025. The book is the Gospel of Luke, and we begin our journey on it today, this Sunday before Advent, by looking at Luke's introduction to his gospel, and then we will wade into what we would normally call the Christmas passages when Advent begins next week. I hope you have found Luke chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. Would you stand, please, to honor the reading of God's Word this morning? And so it begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, in that introduction, Luke is telling us everything that we need to know to kind of orient ourselves to his uh, retelling of Christ's life. He tells us what it is, he tells us who it's for, and he tells us why he wrote it. And we will cover those three things this morning, but begin with this first one. Who wrote Luke? And that may seem like a ridiculous question. I mean, it's right there at the top of the book, Luke. And yet, it is one of nine anonymous works in the New Testament. So we've got to do two things. First, we've got to do some detective work to determine who wrote it. And then second, we've got to not be dogmatic about the conclusions that we reach, even if we have good reason for holding our opinion. So let's start with the detective work. 
We have two books in our New Testament that are essentially companion books, part one and part two, if you will. One is our book, the book of Luke, and the other is the book of Acts. In fact, Bible scholars frequently refer to them under one title, uh, Luke-Acts. Very creative, I know, but that's what they will call it. And under that singular title, they see them essentially as one book. And the reason for them thinking that's pretty easy for all of us to spot. If you would please hold your spot there in Luke chapter 1 and let's find Acts chapter 1 verse uh, 1. Acts chapter 1 verse 1, something again that is going to be easy for us to be able to, to nail down and see as a companion work. Here's how Acts begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And you can see it right there. You don't need any kind of seminary degree to be able to determine that the same author is telling the same reader about the first book he wrote concerning the life ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is the continuation of that story he began. But it still doesn't tell us that Luke is the one writing it, does it? And so we have to kind of continue our detective work, and we do that by staying in Acts a little bit. Now, one of the things that you'll notice when you're reading the book of Acts on your own is that it is a third-person account, meaning that it is a report of what happened to other people until you get to Acts 16, 11. And I want you to see what happens there in Acts 16, 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And the rest of that section, and then on and off, through the rest of the book, the author reveals that he was a companion of Paul by using that personal pronoun, we. So the person who wrote Luke Acts was a companion of Paul during this period of his ministry. But that still doesn't prove to us that it's Luke, does it? So why did the early church almost unanimously conclude that Luke, a companion of Paul, was the one who wrote Luke and Acts. Again, you have to do a little bit of detective work. By identifying those companions of Paul referred to in the third person in the we passages in the book of Acts, uh, we are uh, come up with a, a handful of possibilities. And then when we look at the letters of Paul that were written essentially during that same time, that handful of possibilities shrinks. And of that handful, the early church was in almost unanimous agreement that the author was Luke, which then brings us to what I said earlier. We must hold our conclusions lightly when the Bible itself makes no definitive statement. But at the end of the day, Authorship doesn't really matter here because the message is the same. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God and sent for everyone. Whoever it was that wrote the book of Luke, and I believe it was indeed Luke, 
was obviously a Gentile. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because as a Gentile, he would have been someone who was essentially told from birth he was not worthy of the, of the mercy of God. And even in the early decades of Christianity, the, the Jewish contention of Christianity believed that Gentiles were beyond the grace of God. And so here, when you see Luke the Gentile, referencing the Jews as distinct from himself and focusing in in his book on those who are in the margins, sinners, women, and Gentiles, you see that the reason that he is, is offering this book is to show us that someone on the outside of God's normal pathways of grace has been changed completely by the message of Christ. And so his book about Christ focuses on him rescuing the hopeless and those on the margins. And that's part of the reason that the book of Luke resonates with so many today. So that's who we wrote it. At least that's who we believe wrote it. Now let's ask what it's about. And Luke says explicitly that his is a thoroughly researched account of Christ's life. And he acknowledges his effort is one of many, that it doesn't stand alone. He says there are actually many eyewitnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus who have done the same thing. So we have to ask ourselves, beyond what I just said about it being a gospel to the outsiders, we must ask ourselves what makes it unique. Why, why did Luke feel that he needed to, to add to the body of knowledge concerning the life of Christ? And as we think about that, now is as good a time as any to explain what a gospel, not the gospel that saves us, but what a gospel, a book about the life of Christ, really is. And without going too deep into the weeds, a gospel is a theological biography, which isn't like a biography as we understand it. A theological biography is a retelling of Christ's life through a certain theological or philosophical lens. So Matthew's retelling of Christ's life focuses on how his life was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. That's the reason you see in the Gospel of Matthew over and over this statement, as it was written. Mark, on the other hand, retells the life of Christ through the lens of his passion. Almost a third of his book details the final week of Christ's life, with only a few verses given to the resurrection and its aftermath. John, on the other hand, is retelling Christ's life dedicated to the truth that Jesus is God, the eternal Word. So his entire book is built very specifically around seven distinct I Am statements that Jesus made. Each of those books had a theological agenda, and so they are faithful retellings of Christ's life, but with the timeline and the details of Christ's life arranged to fulfill their theological purpose in writing the book. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share, and you can see this as you read them all together, share uh, the same source material. The wording in large portions of those books is identical. But those identical words are frequently arranged not according to the actual timeline of Christ's life, but according to the agenda of the author. But Luke's agenda 
requires him to provide a more traditional history of Christ's life as, as we would maybe understand a biography today. That means his timeline is more straightforward than the other Gospels. Many times, critics of the Bible will point to these inconsistencies in the various timelines of the Gospels and offer that as reason to reject them as trustworthy history. But these inconsistencies are almost always attributed to the different ways the Gospel writers are telling the story of Jesus. Let me see if I can give you an example to maybe help you understand how this works. If you were writing the story of my life, and frankly, who wouldn't want to read that book, and your purpose for telling my story was how my upbringing impacted me, you would start the story of my life when my family moved to Oklahoma when I was three years old and never say anything about me being born in Missouri because that is not important to the uh, retelling of my life story. It was not important to how I was raised. Or if your purpose was to talk about my life as a pastor, you might start your story when I was called at 16 and then focus on my education and then circle back to when I married Julie, even though I married Julie 11 years before I finished seminary. You get my point? Those would all be faithful retellings of my life, but the details would be arranged to fulfill the agenda. All of the books about Jesus' life called the Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament have particular purposes for telling Christ's story and arrange the details of his life to suit their purpose. But Luke's purpose, which we'll get to in a moment, is aided by a more traditional historical account of his life. So that's what Luke is about. He tells us it is an orderly account of Christ's life. So who's it for? Well, it's for Theophilus. But that's almost certainly not the recipient's real name because of its meaning. Theophilus literally means friend of God. And that's just a little too on the nose for it to be the real name uh, to whom the book was written. It is in all likelihood a pseudonym for the patron of the book, the one who funded the work, but had to keep their involvement secret for some reason. In years past, Bible scholars have theorized it was perhaps a Roman governor. One of the Roman governors we meet in the we passages of Acts, perhaps Agrippa or Festus, but there's really no telling. The consensus is that Theophilus was a real person who has, for whatever reason, been lost to history. But that pseudonym does have benefit to us, I think, because we too, gathered here this morning, are friends of God. So while we aren't Theophilus in the flesh, we are Theophilus, friends of God in spirit, which means that we can read this book for our own benefit, which then brings us to the agenda. So let's ask ourselves, what is its purpose? And we'll answer that by using Luke's own words. Look at verse 4 of Luke 1. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wanted Theophilus 
to have confidence that what he had heard about Jesus from many others was indeed true and that the message of Jesus could be trusted. And so, Luke has both an evangelistic and an apologetic purpose. Apologetically, he seeks to pinpoint Jesus' life in human history as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, to show that he was a real man who really lived, who was really born, who really died, and who really rose again. Evangelistically, he is calling on all those who hear the story of Jesus for the first time to surrender to this Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so that's what we're going to be doing these next few years in three series that we will preach under one heading, the Gospel of Luke. We'll do that by adopting the same approach that Luke adopts. So first, we'll look at Luke 1, 1 through 9, 50, and we'll think about the person of Jesus, who he was, and what he came to do. And then after a break... We'll come back to Luke again, and we'll study Luke 9, 51 through 19, 27, and we'll consider the purpose of Jesus, his actual ministry, and the message that he proclaimed. And then after a final break, we'll come to Luke 19, 28, and finish the book by considering the passion of Jesus, his eventful final days before crucifixion and his resurrection. So, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a very long journey, but it will be one who, that uh, will help those of us who already believe in Jesus, have confidence in what we claim about Jesus, and help those who don't know Jesus or who are considering his life from a distance to come to know him as Lord and Savior. So real quickly, let's review what we've learned today. Who wrote it? Likely Luke, a companion of Paul. What's it about? It's an orderly account of Christ's life. Who's it for? It's written for Theophilus, but for anyone who is a friend of God. And then finally, what's it about? It's to prove the reality of Jesus. But what are we going to do with that this week? I mean, what can we take away from today that will be more than, than just some information from a lecture about Jesus on a book about Jesus? Well, let me suggest to you three things. First, I want you to consider how real the person of Jesus is to you. I think one of the real dangers in the distance between our time and the time of Christ and the spiritual nature of our relationship with him is that Christ can start to become a figure from a dream for us instead of a real person who was born, who lived and died and lives again. And so as we embark on our journey next week by looking at the Christmas passages, which we believe exist only to make us feel warm and fuzzy, let us remember that they are they are detailing, they are pinpointing in history the virgin birth of Jesus Christ to tell us about the glorious reality of the inbreaking of God into human history. 
Let's do that instead of getting caught up in all of the dreaminess of Christmas. Second, I want you to consider how real you see the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus heals and preaches and is challenged and restores, make an effort to understand that these were real people who he touched and who touched him. Make an understanding in your head that these are real encounters between flesh and blood people. And my reason for asking you to do that is this. All around you are real people who need the real Jesus. And you likely won't be able to see the reality of the realness of people and their need for Jesus in your world if you can't see the reality of the realness of people in these situations we'll read about that are now 2,000 years old. In order to fully appreciate the reality of the spiritual situation around us, we have to understand the reality of the ministry of Jesus. And finally this week, I want you to consider how the passion of Jesus has forever changed your life. We typically don't think about the cross at Christmas, do we? But we should. The cross was why he came, and were it not for that cross, his life is an incomplete sentence. Without the cross, we have a nice story about God on a walkabout, but we're still dead in our trespasses and sin. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, Paul said everything that we do is in vain. And so as we enter the season of focusing on the beginning of his earthly life, let's not lose sight of the end, which is our beginning. And with that, we begin our journey through Luke. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.